1: For many years, I have been a fan of Whitley Strieber. In terms of being a storyteller, in in terms of someone who has an incredible amount of insight into a wide variety of subjects, there's simply nobody like Whitley Strieber. He's the author of over 30 best-selling books, both fiction and nonfiction, one of the most fascinating of which deals with his own very unique, very unusual experience, which we'll talk about in uh, just a moment. He has been a collaborator on a variety of projects with Art Bell, including on something that uh, became a movie that was sort of a household name. And uh, he, when it comes to the world of the paranormal, he is one of the foremost experts and authorities, and I am just thrilled that he's agreed to join me on the radio for the hour. Mr. Streber, it is great to talk with you. Thank you for joining me.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's my first time on your show and I'm glad
1: well, to be here. I, well, thank you. Hopefully, uh hopefully it'll be a pleasant enough experience that uh, that you'll make you'll be a repeat visitor. Uh spe- speaking of visitors. There was an incident that you experienced back in 1987. I am sure that you get asked about it every day. You might be sick of uh, of telling the story, but uh, because the story is so interesting, I'm going to ask you to tell it one more time. You were in your cabin in upstate New York, December 26th. Um, I guess it was 1985, not 1987. Right, 1985. The book, the book uh, "Communion," was published in 1987, but December 26th, 1985. Upstate New York, what happened?
2: Well, the impossible. I, we. It was the night after Christmas, a very pleasant, quiet day. Uh, we went to bed normally. Everything was completely normal, me and my wife and our little seven-year-old was in the house too. And I certainly wasn't expecting anything unusual to happen. And in the middle of the night, I sensed movement and heard noises and I opened my eyes and I was not in my bed I was in a little round room like I thought it was a tent and there were these bizarre creatures in it around me I I did not know what to make of it I thought I was having a nightmare, obviously, but I couldn't wake up. I kept trying to wake up and for my bed and my bedroom to come back, but I was awake. I finally faced the fact that I was awake and I guess I began to scream because I heard, started to hear this mechanical, very gentle sort of female, vaguely female voice saying, what can we do to help you stop screaming? Which was nothing. I mean, I was, I, I, uh, I, I could not b- believe it, and I had no idea anything like that could happen to anyone. And it went on for quite a while. I was raped. I was uh, had. A, they put a needle in the side of my head. It was absolutely appalling. It was a dreadful experience. And then it ended in the sense that I have no memory of how it ended. I just woke up the next morning feeling ill and disturbed. I asked my wife if I didn't remember any of it. I remembered something was wrong, but traumatic amnesia is very powerful, and I didn't... I couldn't remember exactly what had happened to me, except that something had gone wrong during the night. And I said to Anne, "I said, what happened last night?" She said, "Well, nothing. I was quiet." And I'd not know what to make of it. I finally decided that an owl had gotten into the house, and because these creatures had these big eyes, and I uh, said, uh, "You know, I think maybe." an owl got in the house and she said, well, how? It was a good question because we didn't have a hearth. We had a stove with a soap pipe and a wood stove to heat the house and there was no other way in so that couldn't have happened. And over the next few days, I became more and more disturbed and uncomfortable and it I really went into a terrible tailspin because I began to remember bits and pieces of this event, and I, I, I did not occur to me that it had anything to do with anything like aliens. That, that was not something I thought about, and I thought, you know, I must be going mad, or I must be, I must have a brain tumor or something. I, I and I began to try to. To get my wife to leave me because I was afraid I was if I this happened again, and I would not get out of it, I would be a hopeless psychotic. She'd have to put me in an institution, and then what would she do for support or anything? And so we, it the next couple of weeks were just terrible. We had fights, and my whole, gestalt, everything about me just deteriorated. Finally, I decided well. At this point, I had remembered the whole sequence pretty well. And I thought, I'd better go to the doctor. Maybe I've got a brain tumor. And so I went to my doctor, and I described what I remembered at that point. He looks at me, and he says, You're telling me you think you were taken aboard a flying saucer by little men? And I thought, Holy God, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. But that is what it sounds like. And I said, "Well, uh, yeah, that is what it sounds like." He said, "Well, I think we need to do some tests." I said, "Yeah, that would be a good idea." I told him about the. I was having significant rectal pain as well as pain in my head, side of my head. And he said, looked at the mark on the side of my head and said, uh, "It looks like a spider bite. It doesn't look like anything serious." And then he examined me rectally and said, Whitley, you know that you've been raped. And at that moment, the bottom fell out of my life, I have to tell you. Because it, whatever had happened to me was somehow real. But we, anyway, I had an MRI scan. I couldn't grasp that. I took a battery of psychological tests that showed only that I was... Very, very stressed. They showed significant levels of stress, but everything else was normal. I wasn't. I, I had no sign of any mental illness or anything.
1: Now, Whitley, let me just interject before you continue. At this point, when you're going through this battery of examinations and you're you're being you're being examined and you're coming to realize what happened to you, are you hoping? that maybe this was some sort of a delusion? Are you hoping that this, that this didn't happen? It
2: didn't occur to me that it happened. Mm-hmm. Even though I was injured, I, I couldn't grasp that. And actually the doctor couldn't either because, I mean, he had evidence of the injury right there. He was examining me. And we were still going through this rigmarole with MRI scans and everything as if it wasn't a real injury because it just didn't compute, not with either one of us. But then, finally, when all of the tests came back normal, the brain was everything was normal, except the stress and the injuries. Then, the idea that it had anything to do with real aliens still was not on the high on the list. And I, uh, we decided that maybe it was a criminal thing that someone had drugged me or something. Because, you know, I was a fairly famous writer at that point, and, and, you know, I was sleeping in this place. It was unlocked. Anyone could have come in. And uh, we just, I just was mystified by it, but terribly, terribly disturbed. I could not sleep nights. I put in on a Radio Shack alarm system. I bought shotguns and was patrolling around the house at night. It was just... Awful. I I uh, did not know what to make of any of it because the idea that it actually had something to do with aliens. I mean, I I lived in the world of the normal world where flying saucer snicker snicker aliens. Not possible they could be here.
1: Were you a believer in the possibility of extraterrestrials visiting Earth prior to this experience?
2: I never thought about it Mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't say I was a believer or a disbeliever. If you'd asked me, I would have said... I I guess I would have said, sure, it could be possible, but they'd have to figure out how to get here. and The distances between stars are very large, so... It's highly improbable, let me put it that way. But I wouldn't have said, no, absolutely not. I would have just said, doubtful. But my brother, as it turned out, had given me a book for Christmas called Science and the UFOs, because he was very interested in UFOs. And I, when I opened it at Christmas, I thought, oh, dear, what a ridiculous thing. And I just, I didn't throw it out, fortunately. I just sort of put it aside. But I began to read it because after all, I mean, I had had, you know, part of this was that what if this was true? What if this is what happened? And toward the end of the book, there was this description of an alien abduction. And I read it and I thought, God, you know, that does sound like what happened to me. And there was a, Researcher named in the book called Bud Hopkins. And it turned out he lived a couple of blocks from us in Manhattan. And so I called him up and Ann and I went over to meet him. He was a very nice guy, a good man and an artist, pretty well-known artist actually in New York. And he did this. He'd gotten involved in this because he'd had some a rather scary UFO sighting on, uh, 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 in Provincetown, uh, uh, on the Cape in Massachusetts. And uh, so did, that had gotten him interested. And he wanted to hypnotize me, and I thought, not bad idea, no interest. So he introduced me instead to a doctor, Donald Klein, who was the head of the New York State Department of Psychiatry. And I had a consultation with Dr. Klein. And he turned out to be the, one of the world's leading forensic hypnotists. He had, he had had many cases where he had been able to help people identify, like license plates of cars that hit them in hit and runs and things. Mm. So the guy knew what he was doing clearly, and all the stuff about hypnosis that you see now is, is basically just made up. If it's in the done in the, by by a professional who knows what they're doing, it could be an effective tool. And now, at this point, neither I nor Dr. Klein thought that when I was hypnotized that I would continue to remember these aliens. What we were doing in the hypnosis was to try to identify evidence that would help me get a go to the New York State Criminal Investigation Division, which I had already talked to, and give them sufficient information to start an investigation. Because I thought I had been assaulted by people who perhaps had been annoyed by one of my books or something, mm-hmm. or just plain crazy. Uh, that They had given me LSD or something. That was my thought. In any case, when I was placed under hypnosis the first time I remembered things that had happened the previous October that I hadn't even thought about and they happened when there were friends at the cabin they absolutely threw me I screamed my head off in the hypnosis session and so afterwards the first thing I did is I went home and called the friends uh, Annie Gottlieb and Jacques Sandalescu, and I said, do you remember the time you were at the cabin in October? He said, yeah, the light, Jacques said, the light. I said, what are you talking, tell me about that. He said, there was a huge light over the cabin, you don't remember, I, we talked about it in the morning. And then Annie says, chimes in and says, quickly there was something running in the house, we heard it too, running, running, running through the upstairs. And uh, that scared me (laughs) pretty badly. Because apparently whatever this was had been in the house in October also. Then all the thing that this hypnosis we did in December, uh, on the December incident, did was make it more clear. And that was the start of the rest of my life, Mm -hmm. basically, because I I didn't walk out of there thinking it was aliens I walked out of there thinking obviously something weird happened to me and I don't know what it was and I'm still sort of in that space all these years later as I've had many experiences with this over the years it's not gone away I've written a number of other books about it the latest one is called a new world and I'm uh from last summer before last uh, and I can't say it's alien contact, but I can say this there's something important about our world that we don't understand
1: so you you and if people are just tuning in we're talking with uh, Whitley Strieber, a best-selling author of uh, many books you could check out his website unknowncountry.com a lot of interesting news stories on there analysis some more background about the case that we're talking about but you've used uh, the the term aliens a few times in the last Fifteen minutes, and then uh, you just said, and I know you've said previously that you can't say that these entities were aliens. Yeah. What? What? Um, what do you think they might have been if they weren't extraterrestrials of some sort?
2: Well, that's, that's a great question. Uh, if you, if, if push comes to shove, I would say the alien hypothesis is the leading contender, but I have never. It, but if you look about across the whole spectrum, and this is a big experience, many people have it, not a single piece of hard evidence, not a single inch of video, nothing of these things has ever... And this house, this house is loaded with cameras. I've had cameras in my life ever since six weeks after this happened. And in all that time, not a single piece of video evidence. So, if it is aliens, they're really good at keeping themselves from keeping themselves hidden, and they're really, really good at, uh, at at they they don't want to be discovered. Now, I will say there are a few pieces of video here and there, and a few photographs here and there that may be something real. I, I wouldn't say that's impossible, but even if we do have video, we still don't know exactly what they are. What if there's something from this planet mm-hmm. that we just don't understand that we that, you know, we, they're, they're very clever at keeping themselves out of our space and we don't often see them.
1: You, you wrote a book about this communion, which was an incredible, uh, bestseller It was um, in New York Times, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Over two million copies sold, and uh, they actually made a a motion picture about it with uh, a a terrific terrific actor, Christopher Walken. Uh, This is a little bit from the film version of Communion. Quickly,
3: let's go back to that first time, the night of October 4th, last October 4th. What do you see? Is that someone there? You know, I see you. I'm seeing some. I'm seeing someone there. I don't think I like this. It's going fine. Get out! It's going
1: fine. Away! Get
3: away! Out! Get out! Get away! Why me? What have I done?
2: This is no good. I can't
3: do this. Whitley, tell me what you see. I'm not hypnotized now, am I? I think you just came out of it.
1: It's pretty cool to be played by Christopher Walken in any event. I'm curious what your opinion was of the film version of your book and how closely that adhered to reality.
2: Fairly close, and uh, it, it it stands up over time. The film, I think I think it's still available on um, Amazon or somewhere. I there's a documentary about me too on the Discovery Channel. It's Discovery Plus rather that's just been published called The Visitors, which this scene, this event, is replayed a little bit more realistically. So. That you know the documentary is it's a ninety minute documentary, and it it goes through all of this and people like Annie Gottlieb and others who had experiences at the cabin and my wife Anne, who's passed away, is in it because there was some video made of her as well and But the bottom line is that 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 particular incident the october incident was incredibly frightening to me. Mm-hmm. And even when you were playing it on the, TV, on the radio just now, I kind of began to relive it and when they tried to get me to listen to it during the making of the documentary, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And I still can't. It's on my website that I I would never listen to it unless I absolutely had to because it just, it takes me right back to the moment I realized that thing was standing across the room in the in the cabin bedroom on in on that October night, and it was just utterly appalling. I another, no, no way. To, I mean, you wake up, you you see something that can't exist, and it's there, and it's looking at you, and you realize this thing is not an animal. This is something else, and it's smart. I mean, you you know, it's not. It's not—you're uh, not in control anymore, and you know it immediately.
1: If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Whitley Strieber. He's a podcaster and the author of over 30 best-selling books, including Communion. A, a nonfiction of a, account of his experiences with some sort of non-human entities. He's written a number of other books as well, fiction and nonfiction, uh, including A New World, which uh, Whitley referenced earlier. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll try and squeeze in as many of your calls as possible. If you want to call in, our number is 800-848-9222. That's 800 848 9222 this is the other side of midnight i'm frank morano here with Whitley Strieber. straight ahead
0: the other side of midnight presents the midnight files midnight the midnight the midnight the midnight files midnight in the desert
3: stars across the sky This magical journey will take us on a ride Filled with a longing Searching for the truth We make it till tomorrow The sun shine on you
1: Midnight I'm a this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, uh, talking with Whitley Strieber, podcaster and the author of many best-selling books, including Communion, which chronicles his account of experiences with some sort of non-human entities. Uh, Mr. Strieber, I know you wrote another book called The Greys, or... The grays you, is that your term for these entities that you encountered back in 1985?
2: Well, it's a it's a I I guess it's a term I really picked up because a lot of people call them that because they're sort of gray in color and uh and, and the book the novel the grays is is fiction. It's not an
1: it's Right, not I know that. Sure.
2: Yeah, and yeah, so I, it's not my particular term, but it's it's whatever it's what they're call what they're called generally
1: now uh, whenever there's a fantastic incident like this a lot of skeptics, maybe rightly so, the first two questions that they'll ask are, one, is this person delusional? Clearly, you've you've, uh, made clear that you were examined thoroughly, uh, and that doesn't appear to be likely. And two is, is this person making this up for publicity or to sell books or anything like that? You've actually taken a polygraph test, and uh, what were the results when you were asked about these experiences?
2: No, well, I took more than one polygraph test, and I've already passed I've always passed them when I went to England the b b c wouldn't have me on on the BBC unless I took a polygraph and passed it. so I took a polygraph here in the states I did it voluntarily, partly because I wanted to see myself what would happen when I talked about it and then in england i you know they set their own polygraph up, and I did that and passed it as well and and you know, you look at the stress response in the tests and you look at the polygraphs and you look at later the people uh, who came up to the cabin also had experiences. And you, you look at all of this and the fact that even before we knew what was going on, Jacques and Annie, who I referred to earlier, had experiences at the cabin that they Annie, in the Doc Discovery Plus documentary, Annie talks about it. Just you know, she she remembers it vividly, like it was yesterday. And Jock has passed on, or he would talk about it too, I'm sure. But in any case, you put all of that together, and you have to. It has to add up to something. But what? I'm not a lie. I'm not lying. It's ridiculous that I would spend my entire life on a lie, especially one as difficult to handle as this, because. I could have published communion and gone on and done other things and had a successful career without all the hassle that comes from writing about this. But I think this is important, and I'm not going to quit. I'm too stubborn.
1: <laughs> no, I love it, and we're certainly glad uh, we're certainly glad that you haven't. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, Discovery Plus documentary that's gotten a lot of attention. I haven't seen it yet. Here's a clip from that Discovery Plus documentary. This
2: is Whitley Strieber. I wish to warn you. This tape was not originally made for public use. Should not be listened to by little children. It will affect them negatively. It smells like cheese in here. It smells kind of. the truth, it's not clean in here. And I kept trying to wake up because I obviously was not in bed. You know, it had to be a nightmare, right? And uh, I realized these. Creatures were there. I kept trying to wake up because I thought I was having a nightmare. I'm getting real scared again. I'm real scared because I cannot do a thing about this. I don't
3: want I
2: listen, I can't listen to it. I'm sorry. Okay, I can't do it. When I hear my voice, the fear comes back un- into me immediately. And it's just impossible to do it. I can't listen to it.
1: I tell you, it looks incredibly compelling. And I'm sorry if that was uh, emotionally uh, t- challenging for you to hear. <laughs>
2: I, I held the phone away from my ear as soon as I heard what you were going to
1: play. <laughs> but uh, I tell you, it makes me want to get Discovery Plus just to see this documentary. What are folks going to learn in this documentary? And what did you think of the finished product?
2: Well, it's a it's a very solid look at this experience in general, and my my, you know what happened to me, and it was you know the the filmmakers were were respectful of, of the whole thing. They've got some excellent experts on there. It's a it's a good show. If you you know you get past the beginning, which is a screaming, which Jimmy mean, they 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 pulled that off of off of my tape the tapes Mm -hmm. of the the and it's real i mean it's just real i'm not an actor i couldn't just do that on command and uh uh, it's a i think if you want to understand learn something about this experience it's a a very good place to go because i think it's maybe conceivably it's certainly it's certainly one of the very best documentaries about the Close Encounter experience has ever been done.
1: I know that you've written subsequent books to communion about your life and that have been nonfiction about your experiences. How many additional incidents, if any, have you had with these visitors ever since that initial experience back in 1985?
2: Well, back in 86, I think, I, when Once Anne and I realized it was real, that it had happened, that something was there, we really thought, you know, do we get out of the cabin? We sell the cabin. And I thought, well, we can't sell it without telling people what happened here. That would not be fair to other mm-hmm. people. And anyway, she said, Whitley, they're real. And if they are real, we can't just walk away from this. And... And uh, we talked about, you know, what do we do? Do we try to get back in contact with them? And so I said, why don't we go out in the woods at night and sit in the place? we I knew by this time pretty much where they had taken me and where I'd gone up in the air with them and all this other stuff. Uh, why don't we go out there at night and we'll sit together there and see if we th- they are aware of, the fact that we want to do this, and maybe they'll come back, and maybe we'll have a you know a more rational, not not so scary experience with this. She said, "Great idea, except for one problem. You go out there by yourself if you want to. I'm not going." <laughs> and uh, so I did. Actually, I went out in the woods. I started going out in the woods at night, and there after. Oh, three or four months. Things began to happen at the cabin. They began to show up, and then the book was published, and I, I got we got thousands and thousands of letters. They were just the postmen were coming and heaping them on the floor of the apartment in big piles, and I was gonna. I said, to Annie, "How are we gonna even throw these out?" She said, "We're not throwing these out." I'm going to read them. I'm going to read every single one of them. And she hired a secretary, and she did. She read them all, and she cataloged them by the thousands. It was amazing. What a job she did. And now they're housed in an archive called the Archives of the Impossible at Rice University in Texas. They've been saved. Thank God. And you can see on every one of them little marks that she made indicating the – a a code she had of what the significance of them all was. She did a fabulous job, but not only that, she totally took everything over. She decided, you know, we're going to write a book, you're going to write a book about this. And she read every page of it. She, she was like, she was just made to do this. It was Mm. amazing. Then she would say, well, we're going to have so-and-so up because I think she or he, We'll have experiences up here, and we had many people up to the cabin, and that used to happen quite routinely. The visitors would show up. It became our life.
1: Wow, that's and uh,
2: I, you know, it still is. I mean, the book A New World talks about what happened just in the past few years.
1: Do, do you have any theory as to why you or why there?
2: Uh, well, the why there part is fascinating because when I went back when we lost the cabin we didn't I didn't move away on purpose. I would never have left the cabin, but we had a lot of financial problems because you know South Park and stuff came on with all kinds of jokes about my my rape turned into a rectal probe, and it was a big joke and you know, people will buy a book of a controversial author, but not of somebody who's being laughed at. So my sales collapsed, and I uh, we lost everything, and we had to leave the cabin. I couldn't go back to the cabin. It, it was too hard, because it was a tremendous personal loss, as you can imagine. And finally, the documentary people came along, and they were very, very sweet people, very thoughtful and good people, and the uh, it, we did the whole thing, and I said to the from the beginning, "I'm not going back to the cabin and finally, mark Marbella the the filmmaker, called me up and he said, "Well, listen, let's talk about how to end this." And I came up with all kinds of different endings, and they just sat silently and listened, and I finally had to say, uh, I have to go back to the cabin." and I did. And it turned out to be an incredibly beautiful mm. experience. The couple who own it now are lovely people. And but there was something under the ground there. There's a big seam of iron through that part of the Shanghams, which are south of the Catskills, underground. The, the Iron Mountain uh, record storage facility is about twenty miles north of the cabin. And when you're there, I could feel this energy there immediately when i got back the first night i was there a few things happened there were some electronic things that happened flashes of light that actually were recorded on the documentary the second night everyone left the family left the, uh, the documentary filmmaker left everyone left and i was left alone with the cabin and so i lived the way i used to live when i was getting the visitors to show up, which I turned off all the lights and I was alone in the house and late at night, I, it almost happened and it had, it was much more powerful than it would have been anywhere else. And I, I could feel it inside me and outside me at the same time. I felt like if I stayed there for more nights, I would, this would start to happen again. And it's got something to do with the land and the way at least I relate to that land and that iron, I'm I'm sure it's got something to do with that.
1: All right. We're going to squeeze in as many calls as we can at 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me begin with Jim in New Jersey. Hello, Jim.
0: Hi, Frank. How are you doing? And uh, Whitley, uh, I was glad to hear your voice again. And uh, I'd like to ask you about uh, your collaboration with Art Bell. I mean, I read your book, got uh, collaboration with him. I guess it was a quickening. And uh, I'd like to know your relationship. And, uh, you know, Art Bell is very well missed. But Frank Moreno is kind of an incarnation of him. So, he yeah, I was out.
2: thinking about that just a minute ago. I'm glad you asked because huh. I was thinking it's like talking to Art. Talking well, to Frank. well, it's you're really both cool. very
1: kind. I'm not in Art Bell's league, but you're you're, you're well, very, don't very kind. Don't worry about
2: that. No one will ever be an artist. That's league. true. He, was, That's he true. was a master. But but, uh, but, but you, anyway, what, first our book was called Superstorm. And it's all happening now, unfortunately. I wish it wasn't. But, you know, it, uh, it was about climate change. And we were ridiculed at the time, but it turned out to be completely true. Anyway, working with Art and being Art's friend was a, great. Uh, we used to hang out together a lot. Uh, his wife Mona, his first wife Mona, and her second wife, I should say, who died, and Ann and I really had a lot of fun together. And uh, I like to joke around. I used to play jokes on Art, um, unwise, because he's a very good <laughs> was a very good prankster himself. And but we 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 used to have just a load of fun, and I miss him. Big time. I miss those wonderful nights together in the deep night on the radio, talking about all kinds of wild stuff. And, oh, my, those were great days.
1: Jim, thank you. Know, go ahead, Jim.
0: Yeah, did you ever go down to the island uh, where they filmed, uh, you know, the the film with uh, uh, Jane uh, Seymour and that when they did the uh, – that what was it called the movie the movie they called you know he went used to go down there like just to revisit with Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour Did you ever go down to the
2: island with Yeah them? I did uh, we absolutely did uh uh somewhere in time they used yeah. to have a, a they may still on Mackinac Island in uh in uh Michigan there's a big big beautiful old fashioned resort there and everyone used to dress up in uh in period clothes and Ann and I went one year and, you know, we had costumes made and we really went for it. And when we got there, we realized we had dressed for the wrong period. (laughs) But anyway, we still had a lot of fun and yeah, we did go there. And it was really fun.
1: Uh, Jim, thank you very much for the call. That book that you co-wrote with Art Bell, Superstorm, that actually became the basis for a huge blockbuster motion picture with uh, Dennis Quaid That's called right. The uh, the Day After Tomorrow, which uh, P- is still on television all the time. People still talk about it. did very well. well what did you think of the film version of that, that book collaboration with Art Bell?
2: Well, in one sense, it's realistic uh, in that it does talk about how the climate will deteriorate and what is happening actually happening now in another sense it compresses everything into like a week
0: oh, right it. right
2: a week but you know it's a movie they have to sure. they can't you know and so uh and oh, and it's it's really a you know it 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 was it's a good movie i enjoyed it and i i've been very lucky in the movies that have been made of my books uh the wolf and the hunger are both cool uh, Day after tomorrow is a good movie Communion is 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 okay too they didn 't they They were good filmmakers, but they did not have enough money. Mm-hmm. The special effects in communion could have been better we you know they did their best with what they
1: had. We had to take one quick break we 'll continue with Whitley Strieber in just a moment we 'll take your calls at 800-848-9222. this is one 9222 straight ahead. Of midnight, I'm Frank Morano, joined by Whitley Strieber, podcaster and uh, the author of many best selling books, including Communion. One of the more recent ones is A New World. And uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Whitley's work, you can uh, check out his website, unknowncountry.com. There's a ton of interesting stuff on there, including about the books, and you could actually see the images. ...of the cabin that we have been talking about. Uh, Mr. Strieber, you talked about that initial incident back in 1985. It sounds very traumatic and I think fits every definition of the word assault. You did have, though, some positive experiences with these visitors, right? What happened?
2: Well, the next really big one that happened was about a year later, maybe I think it was in February of 1988 or 87, but it was anyway, it was about a year and a half later, I would say. And they had, uh, we had felt like they were coming around the cabin, and I had been sitting out in the woods and imagining the idea of them coming, and we would sit together and talk and try to understand. I would want to understand them, and... Um, one morning, just before dawn, I heard a sound like a like a you know when a chauffeur is blown in a in, in temple that, that kind of a sound uh, uh, or uh, sort of a mournful kind of bugle sound and it was such an unusual sound. I thought, could this have something to do with them? Because you know it's quiet out here. Nothing would make a sound like that. So I put my robe on and slippers and went out on the deck, and I could hear there's a little hill there, and then beyond the hill uh, it goes down into an, an, through a little woods and then opens into a clearing. And I could hear a noise out there, a kind of clanking noise that didn't belong. So I walked out to, up to the little hill and across the little hill, And the woods were bare because it was winter. And I could see something beyond the woods in the field, uh, in the clearing. There was something there, a big object of some kind. So I started, I thought, maybe this is actually happening. I started to walk down there, but then I heard in my head a voice said I s I hesitated for a moment and the voice says, Come on, come on and I thought, Woo, that is that's I'm not coming on. <laughs> not with that voice. And I turned around and went back to the cabin because I thought I you know, what if I went down there and I you know and I just disappear never seen again. What happens to Anne? What happens to my baby? And uh I didn't want that you know I just couldn't I just didn't feel I could do that i didn't I would not take that risk as soon as I put my hand on the door knob of the cabin of the door back into the cabin. there were these three cries above the forest this oh 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 that remain to this day the most strange and moving i mean they were very emotional these cries and they were very perfect like you know they were just perfectly spaced they were almost like if you could imagine a highly emotional machine might make sounds like that it was very strange i almost turned around and went back but then i thought i just there's no way i can take this risk So I went back into the house and I went upstairs and I was sitting on the side of the the bed and I felt a presence in the room. And this was something we'd gotten used to because the cats could see them. Our cats could see them. And so when they were in the house and you couldn't see them, you felt like something was in there. The cats would be watching them move around. So the cats weren't there that day. But I'm sitting there and I felt this presence. And the next thing I knew I'm suddenly in another room and I'm kind of gliding and I'm looking around. I'm trying to figure out where I am and what this is because it was totally real. It was like I was plunged from my bedside into this completely other space in a second. And I'm, I try to figure this out, and I'm not, I'm, it's, I'm, I would get scared if I'd stayed there for long, but I'm not scared at this point. And then I recognize it. I am looking up at my mother's desk. I'm in my mother's bedroom when I was a baby, and I'm gliding because I've just started to walk. Mm. They have taken me back. In my Using my own memory, I'm sure, memories that I don't have access to, to the moment I first walked, as if to say, you've taken a baby step. And that is how they, they communicate and where the relationship became a relationship, instead of a scared guy face-to-face with the unknown. Wow. Because that sensitivity got through to me. Maybe I should have gone down there, and maybe I shouldn't.
1: Uh, uh, That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And uh, that's um, covered in the book Transformation?
2: Yeah. By the way, there's a new edition of Communion that's just out with a new introduction, and for the first time, an audiobook, uh, an unabridged audiobook, which I've read myself. It's on Audible.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's pretty neat. And, again, I want to encourage people to go to your website, unknowncountry.com. Let me try and squeeze in at least one more call here uh, before we uh, run out of time for the hour. Tom is in the Bronx. Tom, you're on yes, with Whitley uh, Street.
3: Yes, hello. I'd like to say that part of your story about uh, hearing the voices uh, could come from uh, LCLF, Electrical Low Frequency, The United States government has a lot of uh, unusual characters on the payroll. I was hit with Elf years ago uh, where I was working uh, across the street in a restaurant. They had some kind of an agreement with the restaurant where they they were practicing on people. It was a... um, a retired FBI agent with his two relatives and they would go through the country.
1: Uh, real quick it's, Tom, cuz we're only going to have about a minute. Yeah,
3: well anyway, part of your situation could be electrical low frequency where you hear voices. It's a, uh, from uh, from somebody that looks like they're using a uh, uh, like a uh, uh, device to, uh, uh,
1: to, all right, to Tom. Push the uh, let, well, I, let, I know how that voice
3: was generated. It's generated
2: with microwaves, and it's a, it's a, it's a something that we can now do to an extent. We do, we are able to do that. It wasn't extra low frequency. It was microwaves that generated generate that voice.
1: But you don't and, believe that that's what happened in your in any of your no, experiences. No, it wasn't
2: the government. Well, I have to tell you that I've never had a hostile relationship with the government with this. The, the uh c i a officer became involved in this from the very beginning and he was always good to us uh he 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 uh and he came often to the cabin and they took it very seriously they did not uh they didn't uh they they weren't hostile to me
1: um, Whitley, it has been a real treat to be able to talk with you for the last hour. I hope we could do this again. I've learned a lot. I have pages more of uh, questions for you and I- I'd love to have you back and uh, have you address some of these other the other experiences that you've had and other experiences that other people have had as well.
2: Well, I'd love to come back. I've enjoyed it a lot, and thank you for having me. Thank you,
1: Whitley Strieber. Check out uh, many of his books and learn more of his story at unknowncountry.com. Some interesting podcasts on there as well. Until next hour, keep asking questions.